Hello, everyone, and welcome to Deviance, a true crime podcast. My name is Devin, and today we're going to be talking about a case that makes me just as angry today as it did the first time I heard about it a few years ago. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about Amanda Knox and the murder of her roommate, Meredith Kircher. Now, I watched the Netflix documentary about this case a few years ago, um, and even though it was basically made to be like a form of propaganda that quote-unquote proves Amanda's innocence, um, as someone who had never heard about the case before, all it really did was make me think that Amanda had just gotten away with murder. Um, and that she was just rubbing it in our faces at this point. Um, it was just so weird and, like, off-putting. But, like, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, so, yeah, anyway, without further ado, let's just get into it. So, before the murder of Meredith Kircher, who was Amanda Knox? So, Amanda was born on July 9th, 1987, in Seattle, Washington, and was the oldest of four daughters. Uh, her mom, Etta, was a math teacher. Her father, Kurt, was a vice president of finance at a local Macy's, and her parents actually ended up getting divorced when she was, like, really young, um, and her mom ended up marrying her stepfather, Chris, who was an IT consultant. Um, so, by all accounts, they were just kind of like your normal, average, middle-class family, Nothing too crazy from what I could find, honestly. Amanda as a teenager, like kind of described uh, by her friends and family, was super outgoing, um, hung out with all groups of people, was like super involved in a bunch of extracurricular activities like theater and sports. And in the documentary, actually, Amanda self-described herself as quirky and ridiculous and that she was okay with being these things, that she like liked being weird. Um... And she first traveled to Italy at the age of 15 while on a family vacation. And from what she says, she immediately fell in love with it. And that trip was what sparked her interest in the language and the culture of Italy and stuff like that, which is relevant, I promise. Um, (laughs) After she graduated from high school in 2005, uh, she enrolled in the University of Washington to study linguistics and actually made the dean's list in 2007. Um... While in college, she decided that she wanted to, quote, find herself, um, and decided that she wanted to travel, so she worked something like three different jobs to save up enough money so that she could study abroad for a year in Italy, and she actually did, and in September 2007, she was, she finally had enough money, and she did exactly that. She moved into an apartment in Perugia, Italy, with uh, two Italian women and a British girl named Meredith Kircher. Um, Their apartment was also the kind that was, like, split, so they had neighbors that lived downstairs from them, and Amanda and her roommates lived in the upstairs part of the apartment. So... Again, this is obviously why Italy is relevant, because Amanda did end up studying in Italy. Um, And while she, like, after she first got there, she realized pretty quickly that her classes were basically a joke. Um, She wasn't really doing that much studying at all. Um, She was mostly partying and, like, having fun and stuff like that. So she decided she might as well try to get a job uh, while she was there. And after, like, a week or so of being in Italy, she was hired at a bar called Le Chic. Um, that was owned by a man named Patrick Lamumba. Lamumba? 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 Patrick. His name was Patrick. Um, Patrick was a musician from the Congo, and he thought that hiring Amanda would bring in customers, because they do mention this in, in the documentary, but in America, Amanda was just, you know, cute. But in Italy, she was the beautiful blonde American girl, or whatever, which was, like, a hot commodity, I guess. <laughs> um... So, let's talk about Meredith Kircher really quick as well, as she is the actual victim in this case, believe it or not. Um, Meredith was born on December 28th, 1995, in London, England, and we actually have the same birthday. Um, She is 11 years older than me. I was born in 96, but we do have the same birthday. Um, She was the youngest child in her family and had two older brothers and one older sister, 
and in August of 2007, Meredith was getting ready to start her freshman year at the University of Perugia to study European politics, and the reason she chose Italy for school was because she had apparently also visited Italy when she was 15, like Amanda had, and obviously fell in love with it as well. Um, I've never been to Italy. Apparently it's gorgeous, so I don't blame them, but... Um, she apparently felt really similar to Amanda and that she wanted to, like, quote, find herself by studying abroad, too, I guess. And she was really excited for the whole experience, which just makes the fact that she was murdered really sad. Like, even sadder, I guess, um, as if it's not already sad. So a few weeks after Amanda moved into the apartment in October of 2007, Amanda and Meredith attended a classical music concert together, which is where Amanda met 23-year-old Rafael Solit... Solicito? I'm sorry, I'm not Italian. I don't know how to pronounce Italian names. I'm just going to call him Raphael from now on, or Roth, rather, um, who, after they met, she said, they, they both said it was like a, an immediate connection. So they spent pretty much all of their time together from that point on. Um, so now, let's talk about Raphael for a second. Um, there's not much to say about him before he met Amanda, but here is what I could find. Um, he was born on March 26th, 1984, in the city of Giovinazzo. It's a city in southern Italy. Um, and he, uh, he described himself as, like, really shy growing up. And he was actually an overweight as a kid and, like, as a teenager and hadn't ever really gotten any attention from girls growing up. Um, and after graduating from high school, he, enro he enrolled in the University of Perugia to pursue a degree in computer science. And um, that's literally all I could find about him before he met Amanda, because obviously this was before the age of social media, mostly. Um, again, they met in 2007. Like I said before, Amanda said that she and Raf clicked pretty much immediately, and they spent all of their time together pretty much after initially meeting each other because he lived like down the street from her as well. Yeah, and I also just feel like I should mention Perugia is known for being like a university town um, and it, it has a large student population. Um, but anyway, Amanda said that although she'd never been in love before, um, she was pretty sure that like what she had with him was love. And based on her own admission, pretty much all they did together was, like, smoke weed and have sex, basically. Um, but, like, this this puppy love situation only lasted for, like, a week when everything suddenly came to a halt because Meredith Kircher, Amanda's roommate, was murdered. Um, on November 1st, 2007, Amanda was supposed to work a shift that night at Le Chic when her boss Patrick sent her a text message saying that she didn't need to come into work um, to and to take the night off. So Amanda was happy because she was at Roth's house and she didn't want to go to work because who does? And she responded in Italian and she said, see you later, which is very important later on. Um, and then, yeah, just kept hanging out with Raphael at his apartment. Um, according to them, all they did that night was make and eat dinner, smoke weed, have sex, watch movies, and fall asleep. They then woke up the next day around 10 a.m., and because they lived so close to each other, again, they lived, like, down the street from each other, Amanda was able to walk from Raphael's apartment back to her own apartment. Um, Amanda said that the first thing she noticed when she got home was that her front door was wide open, and one of the windows was broken, which, if that were me, I would pretty much immediately turn around and call the police. Um, but no, Amanda went inside, looked around, and I guess didn't see anything out of the ordinary. Went into the bathroom where she noticed a few drops of blood in the sink, and still not thinking much of it for some reason, she decided to take a shower. Um, and when she was done, she noticed a bloody footprint on the bathroom rug, but still didn't think anything of it because I mean I get it there's four girls living in an apartment like this is gonna be gross but like blood happens every month so maybe she was just like these girls are kind of gross they're just getting their period blood everywhere but I mean who knows you know you're living in an apartment with three other people I mean anything could happen but it wasn't until she looked over while she was blow drying her hair and saw that someone had taken a shit in the toilet and didn't flush that she decided something was off. 
Yeah, not the blood, not the door being wide open, not the bro- window being broken. It was the turd floating in the toilet bowl that finally set off the alarm bells, apparently. So she finally freaks out and runs back to Raphael's apartment and tells him that she thinks someone may have been in her apartment and, like, all the things that she saw. So they walked back together and looked around the apartment. And while looking around, they noticed that Meredith's door was locked. Um, and the other two roommates were not home. I should mention that. They weren't home that night. Um, they tried knocking. They tried calling her cell phone. But she wouldn't answer, so they started to get kind of concerned because of the blood and stuff, obviously. And so because she wasn't answering, Raphael starts trying to break down the door, but it doesn't work. While this was going on, two cops from the Postal Police Force, which is apparently some sort of, like, low-key police force, uh, showed up to the apartment to return a cell phone that they believed belonged to Meredith that someone had apparently found in their backyard, like, as if someone had thrown it in the backyard while they were driving by. Now, these officers were used to investigating postal crimes, which, from what I could find, means that they pretty much exclusively investigate crimes that use, like, communications as part of its modus operandi, such as, like, computer hacking, child pornography, credit card fraud, computer viruses, copyright violations, you know, stuff like that. So they were not prepared for what could be on the other side of that door. So once they got there and Amanda and Raphael explained what was going on, the officers decided to call the military police because obviously they're way more qualified to deal with what at this point just seems like a break-in. Um... And once the military police got there, they told everyone to get out of the house so they could look around. And when they finally broke down Meredith's door, they discovered her body underneath a blood-soaked blanket lying on the floor. She was completely naked, her throat had been slit, and there was evidence on her arms and legs of having been restrained somehow. And she had a bunch of different kinds of wounds all over her body. Um, For example, she had cuts under her chin that looked like someone had been holding a knife to her throat. Like, if as if they were, like, trying to fuck with her while she was tied up or something. You know what I mean? Like, you've seen in movies when people hold knives under people's chins just to, like, fuck with them. That's what it looked like. So, obviously, after they found her body, they sent her to have an autopsy performed on her. And... Jumping ahead just a little bit, when they got the autopsy back, they found evidence that she had been sexually assaulted. And obviously, when you have a naked victim, it's probably safe to assume that's the case, but the autopsy confirmed that. And there were traces of unknown male's DNA on her body. Um, Her body also had a total of 40 wounds. 40. That's insane. Um... So, yeah, after the autopsy came back, the police started to suspect that maybe there was more than one person involved in the murder because 40 wounds is a lot. And they started to think that maybe this was some sort of, like, sex gang or something that, like, broke in and, like, attacked her or something. And so going back to the crime scene a little bit, the media was pretty much there immediately. Like, they were there, (laughs) like, the second the body was found. Um, And they were, um, you know, just, like, walking around filming stuff. And while they were there, they captured some pretty weird behavior from Amanda and Raphael. Um, Basically, Amanda and Raphael were standing outside of the apartment while the police were investigating, and they were being, like, super affectionate with each other. They were hugging and kissing and just... It was super weird behavior, and Italian people, like, the Italian public really read it as, like, an inappropriate reaction to just finding out that your roommate had been brutally murdered in your house (laughs) that you shared together. Um... Also, some more weird behavior is when a candlelight vigil was held for Meredith so that people could obviously, like, pay their respects and whatnot. Amanda and Raphael didn't show up. They just didn't show up. They were at a friend's house eating dinner instead. You'd think that if your roommate was just brutally murdered and you were the one who basically found her body, that you would at least go to the fucking candlelight vigil that was being held for her. Like, what the fuck? I don't know. That just, like, that's super weird to me. So... Anyway, back to the crime scene for a second. The police collected over 400 pieces of evidence from the house while they were investigating it. And two days after the murder, the police brought Amanda back to the apartment to see if she could identify, like, if any of the knives were missing. So they they could potentially find the murder weapon. 
Um, Amanda says that while she was there looking at the knives, the reality of everything that had just happened, like, kind of just hit her all at once. Um, you know, that her roommate had just been brutally murdered in their apartment, that the murder weapon could have been a knife in their own home. And apparently she just broke into hysterics and, like, started bawling her eyes out, which the police thought was very suspicious. But up until this point, she wasn't necessarily a suspect yet. Um... On November 5th, so four days after the murder, the police brought in Raphael for questioning. Um, Amanda hadn't been asked to come in for questioning yet, but she went with him and waited in the waiting room. Apparently, while she was waiting for him, people who were also in the waiting room said that Amanda was seen doing cartwheels, stretches, yoga, and she was basically just exercising in the waiting room, which is super weird. Um, but this, this obviously doesn't mean that she's guilty or anything. And like I said before, Amanda is a fucking self-diagnosed weirdo, but to be doing yoga and like exercising in the waiting room of the police station while your boyfriend is being questioned about the murder of your roommate, just a little bit strange if you ask me, but you know, whatever, who am I to judge? Um, (laughs) so meanwhile, Raphael is obviously being questioned and the police ask him for his version of the story And he starts off by saying that he and Amanda were at his apartment the entire night and that they never left. But the police didn't like that. So they continued pressing him and questioning him for hours and hours to the point where later on he said he felt like his perception of reality started to get warped. And if you're anything like me and you're obsessed with true crime, which if you're listening to this, then you probably are, um, you probably know that it's unfortunately pretty common for people to give false confessions while being questioned by the police because the investigators are literally trained to break you down they'll question you for hours and hours on end they'll twist your words around to make you think you said something that you didn't they'll lie to you and tell you that someone else already ratted on you so you might as well confess and there are just so many unethical tactics used to get people to confess and sometimes people who aren't even guilty end up confessing to crimes they didn't commit um And that is what Raphael claimed happened when he suddenly changed his whole story. And instead of Amanda having been at his apartment all night, the night of the murder, he told the police that she didn't get there until 1 a.m. So, based on this, the police decided to check Amanda's phone to see if there was any evidence as to, like, where she was the night of the murder. And while they were going through her phone, they found that uh, text message from her boss, Patrick, saying that she didn't need to come in to work that night. And Amanda's response, which, again, was in Italian, she's not a fluent Italian speaker. Like, she could understand Italian, she could mostly speak Italian, but again, she's not fluent. It's not her native language. She grew up in America, she was from Seattle, for God's sakes. Um, And so her text back to him literally translated to, we will see each other later, have a good night. So, because of the wording, the police took this as she was literally going to be seeing Patrick later that night. Um... Instead of just, like, what, I guess what she thought was a casual, like, see you later, you know, like, how we say it in America. Culturally, it's different, and, like, the wording was weird, and, like, it sounded like she was saying, I will see you later that night, if that makes sense. So, at that point, the police decided to then interrogate Amanda, because they, I guess they felt like they had enough evidence to, like, question her and, like, try to get some sort of answer out of her. I don't know. So Amanda says that she doesn't remember exactly what happened while she was being interrogated because she was under so much stress. Um, Apparently the police were screaming at her, threatening her, cursing at her, basically telling her that they knew she was guilty so she might as well confess, which, can I just say, can I just say, if a police officer is telling you that they know you're guilty, wouldn't they have arrested you immediately instead of trying to force you to confess for hours and hours? Like, if you have all this evidence, if you know that I'm guilty, why am I being questioned right now? Why am I not just in a jail cell? You know what I mean? Anyway, I don't know how all of that works, so I could be completely wrong. Please correct me if I am. But, like, that's just what it seems like to me. I don't know. Anyway, Amanda also claims that at one point, one of the police officers allegedly assaulted her during the questioning by, like, he, like, hit her in the back of the head, apparently as a way of, like, telling her to remember what happened because... Amanda told them that she couldn't remember because, uh, like, everything that happened that night because they'd been smoking weed the night of the murder. So, after hours and hours of being questioned, yelled at, and allegedly assaulted, Amanda claims that by 1.45 a.m. she had become completely delusional and said that she had some sort of vision of Patrick, her boss, at her apartment, 
and Meredith screaming. So she thought that that meant Patrick had killed her. Um, the police believed her and went to Patrick's house and arrested him. Um, and then the next day, on November 6th, Amanda and Raphael were also arrested. So, after they were arrested, Amanda actually wrote a letter saying that because she was under so much stress and pressure from the police, uh, and that she felt like she was in a dreamlike state when she confessed, she didn't think that what she said was very accurate anymore. Um, and soon after that, Amanda's friends in Perugia actually started coming forward saying that Amanda has been acting really weird after the murder. Um, one friend claimed that she said to Amanda, quote, I hope Meredith didn't suffer badly. To which Amanda apparently responded, of course she fucking suffered. She had her fucking throat cut. Now, listen. I honestly think that this was just a weird cultural miscommunication, assuming that her friends are Italian. Um, and this seems to be a theme throughout this whole case. It just feels like... There's a big cultural disconnect between Italian and American culture, so the way Amanda was speaking and acting in certain scenarios probably seemed weird and suspicious to them, but would seem normal to an American. Like, I don't think that response is someone, like, I don't think, I don't think that response is out of place or, like, strange. Because honestly, if my roommate was brutally murdered and someone said something stupid like, I hope she didn't suffer... I could see myself getting annoyed and saying something like that, too, honestly. Um, I don't know. Maybe it was just one of those things where you just had to be there to understand why that response was so weird. But to me, that doesn't seem like something that would lead me to believe she had anything to do with it. And again, this is coming from someone who, after watching the documentary, didn't necessarily believe that she was innocent. You know? Like, I don't know. That just seems like they're grasping at straws. But anyway... By the time the three of them were arrested, this case had become international news. Uh, the media took this story and absolutely sensationalized it, um, especially the Daily Mail. There was this one journalist in particular who worked for the Daily Mail named uh, Nick Pisa, Pisa, I don't know, who was pretty much the guy who covered Meredith Kircher, uh, like the, the Meredith Kircher case from start to finish, really. Um, they interviewed him in the documentary, um, and truthfully, he's kind of a giant scumbag, uh, he makes it really clear that even though there was a big possibility that Amanda was innocent, he didn't really care about that. His only goal was to produce the most like clickbaity, dramatic headline he possibly could before his competition had the chance. And that was really his justification for it, was that if he didn't do it, someone else would anyway. Um, and that's a, such a sociopathic way of thinking, in my opinion, but that probably just means I would make a shitty journalist, I guess. Um, but... Here's a clip of Nick Pisa from the documentary so you kind of fully understand what I'm talking about. The whole place was just awash with journalists. So any nugget, any scrap, anything new, you were just trying to get it out ahead of your competitor. We were all camped outside the mortuary waiting for the pathologist to come out. And I think also they liked the fact that, wow, I've got a British journalist talking to me. I'm... I'm... I'm now a big star as well. And we managed to get it out to the British press before anyone else. And that was a scoop that we had. And it made headlines all over the world to see your name on the front page with a great story that everyone's talking about. It's just a fantastic buzz. I mean, I'd like to say it's like having sex or something like that, you know? At the time, people were saying, oh, how could you do that? How could you cover such a story? And how could you be involved and... And yeah, at the same time, these are the same people who are logging onto the internet first thing in the morning trying to find out the latest details, you know? And I think now, looking back, some of the information that came out was just crazy, really, and it's just completely made up. But hey, what are we supposed to do, you know? We are journalists and we are reporting what we are being told. It's not as if I can say, right, hold on a minute. Uh, I just want to double check that uh, myself in some other way. I mean, goodness knows how. And then I'll let my rival get in there first before me. And then, hey, I've, I've lost a scoop. So, the, yeah, the press basically took this case and immediately blamed Amanda and Raphael for the murder. Um, they found old pictures of the two on, like, these old-ass MySpace accounts and used them out of context, obviously, to make them seem like they were evil people. Um, the one they used for Amanda was her holding a fake machine gun thing and, like, laughing, I guess. Um, it just, it was like a stupid photo. It wasn't even, like, an intimidating or serious photo. 
And the one they used of Raphael was of him dressed as a mummy on Halloween, holding, f- f- like, fake blood and, like, a machete. This is, okay, this is why I firmly believe that you should always be mindful of what pictures you post on social media because one day, if you somehow get wrapped up in some sort of murder case, they can and will use those pictures against you. That's all I'm going to say. But, honestly, the craziest part of the media coverage, like, of this case to me was that the police and like other people involved in the investigation, even like the prison guards where Amanda was being kept were willfully handing information over to the press. And a lot of people say that this is because the city of Perugia hadn't seen something like this in like a really long time. And a lot of people say that the lead investigator wanted this case to be as dramatic as possible because he really enjoyed like the positive attention he was getting from it. Um, because like he would, he said in the documentary that he would walk down the street and people would come up to him and shake his hand, thanking him for keeping the, the city safe. Like it was that level. He was like walking around like a fucking rock star. Basically. He loved that shit. Um, so on top of them taking those, uh, photos out of context and using them to like paint a picture of who Amanda and Raphael were, they also took what was once a nickname for Amanda back home, Foxy Noxie and used it to paint Amanda as, like, this sex-crazed lunatic who seduced men into committing sexual assault and murder against other women. Um, it was, Honestly, it was absolutely insane. But, again, they did whatever they could to get the best possible headline they could and get as many eyeballs on their articles as possible. It's kind of sickening, honestly. But So, going back to the actual case for a second... Three weeks after Amanda accused Patrick of murdering Meredith, a customer from his bar was actually able to prove an like provide an alibi for him, uh, showing that he was actually at work the night that Meredith was murdered. So he was released. Um, I'm sure Amanda was immediately took off the payroll when he got back home. But after Patrick was released, um, a few weeks later, on December 17th, the head prosecutor, the guy I was talking about before, Giuliano Minini. Uh, asked Amanda why she lied about Patrick committing the murder when he wasn't even there. And Amanda insisted that it was because, like we talked about earlier, she had been questioned for hours and hours, been verbally abused, threatened by the police, and she was under so much stress and she was so exhausted that she started to become delusional. And in that moment, she really did believe that Patrick could have been responsible. But again, the police didn't like that answer and kept telling her that she was a liar and that they didn't believe her. And from that point on, Amanda said that she knew they were probably not going to listen to anything that she said anymore. Now, here is something that is absolutely insane to me. While Amanda was being held in prison, they decided to give her an STD test. And this is when she was told that she was HIV positive and was going to get AIDS. So Amanda, obviously very upset, decided to write in a diary about all of this, like her experience and, you know, stuff like that. And in the diary, she wrote about how she was shocked by this information, that she was really scared that she was going to get AIDS and that she was going to die because that's what they told her. And she had always wanted a family, but now she thinks that'll never happen. Um, She also wrote a list of everyone she'd ever had sex with, detailing whether or not she used protection and, like, what they did and stuff like that. Obviously, very private information that only the person who experienced it should know, but somehow, somehow, the diary got released to the press. So now everyone knew Amanda's full sexual history in intimate detail and that Amanda was apparently HIV positive. So the media took this and painted an even bigger picture of Amanda as, like, this sex-crazed succubus, man-eating lunatic, but now she's also, quote, dirty and has all these STDs. Um, If anything, it probably made the media feel like they were justified in emphasizing Amanda's sexuality and, like, shaming her for being a 20-year-old college girl just living her life, but I digress. Because, yeah, someone having HIV is totally an excuse to call them a whore on national television, but whatever. But the worst thing about that whole situation is that Amanda wasn't even actually HIV positive. They lied to her and told her that she was going to get AIDS and die just to fuck with her. Because I guess they thought that, that would get her, they, they would be able to get her to confess that she killed Meredith because they, she thought that she was dying. So at that point, what's, why are you keeping the secret? But can you fucking believe that? They really told this girl 
that she had AIDS to get her to confess to a crime that they had no evidence that she even committed. Isn't that completely insane? But I should say now that I think the reason Amanda's sexuality was emphasized so much was because they had also painted Meredith in this light of, like, she was, like, an innocent, naive girl who had never done anything wrong or sexual in her life and essentially made her into, like, a nun. So to make the story even more interesting, they obviously needed the murderer to have been the antithesis of good, the opposite of the picture they painted of Meredith, which makes sense from a storytelling standpoint, but when you intertwine fiction with a criminal murder case, it doesn't usually turn out great, you know? <laughs> but anyway... During the investigation, police searched Raphael's apartment, and they actually found a knife that matched the description of the possible murder weapon used on Meredith. They took the knife and apparently found Amanda's DNA on the handle of the knife and Meredith's DNA on the blade. Amanda claimed she had no idea how either of their DNA was on the knife and really distrusted the police at this point, obviously, rightfully so, and said that it was basically impossible for Meredith's DNA to be on the blade because... Again, they found it at Raphael's apartment. Amanda and Raphael had only been dating for, like, a week when this happened. Keep that in mind, too. That's, a, that's always been insane to me. But, oh, I should also mention, they never found any trace of Amanda's DNA in the room where Meredith was killed. Never. But, let's move on. Police also found a clasp from Meredith's bra underneath the rug in the living room of Amanda and Meredith's apartment that was somehow overlooked the first time, they found it 46 days after the initial investigation. Yeah, 46 days, like a month and a half. Um, and they found Raphael's DNA on it. They also somehow missed this the first time, but they found a fingerprint on the pillowcase that was underneath Meredith's body uh, that matched a man named Rudy Gueda. Gueda? I don't know. They raided Rudy's apartment when they got the match and got DNA off of his toothbrush, which is kind of terrifying. Turns out his DNA was on Meredith's bra clamp too, uh, the sleeve of her shirt, and on her body. So who the fuck is this guy? Who's Rudy Gueda or Gede? I don't. I don't know. Well, he actually already had a criminal history. Uh, he'd been convicted of breaking and entering in the past, and the community claimed that he was notorious for being, like, super sketchy in general. Um, but the time the police had connected him to the crime scene, Rudy had already fled the country and gone to Germany. Uh, the Italian police managed to get one of Rudy's friends to call him, like, to agree to call him, uh, where Rudy basically told him his side of the story which was that he'd met Amanda and Meredith the day before the murder while playing basketball with their neighbors, and the next day he went to Meredith's apartment where things started to get physical, but they didn't have sex. Um, at some point in the night, he went to the restroom where he then heard Meredith scream. Um, he walked out of the bathroom and saw a man standing over Meredith who had blood pouring from her neck. Rudy said that the man then tried to attack him, uh, cutting his hand with a knife, and then the man ran out of the house. Rudy said that he then tried to stop the bleeding with some towels, but the bleeding wouldn't stop and it was getting way worse. So he started to panic and then just left Meredith there to die. He didn't call the police. He just fled the scene. He also made it clear that Amanda and Raphael were nowhere near the crime scene when it happened. So I don't know about you, but this story sounds like complete bullshit to me. Like, if this were true, how do you explain the cuts on Meredith's chin that look like someone had been torturing her with a knife or the evidence on her arms and legs of having been restrained, or the fact that the door to her bedroom was locked from the inside. It just doesn't make any sense. For it to have all happened so quickly like that, that doesn't make any sense. Also, who doesn't call the cops when something like that happens? He said that he was afraid that he would be blamed for the murder, but honestly, what makes him look even more guilty, if what he said was true, is leaving Meredith to die, not calling the police, then fleeing to a different country while other people take the fall for what happened. Yikes, dude. Big yikes. Again, like, what the f- whatever. Anyway, after he was arrested, Rudy actually changed his story. Uh, he initially said that Amanda and Raphael had nothing to do with the murder, but then in court, obviously after he got caught, he said that he actually saw Amanda's silhouette, uh, it, like out out in the window 
like, okay, dude, you met her yesterday and you can already identify what her silhouette looks like in the dark. Whatever. Also, why would he lie the first time? If he literally fled the country to avoid being blamed for the murder, why wouldn't he take the opportunity to blame someone else the first time? That doesn't make any sense either. Um, but despite Rudy's efforts to prove his innocence, he was found guilty of being an accomplice in Meredith's murder and of sexually assaulting her and was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Now, what really gets me is even though Rudy was found guilty of this, the media barely paid any attention to him at all. Even though someone else straight up said that Amanda and Raphael had nothing to do with it, they still didn't care and continued to focus all of their attention on Foxy Noxy. And because the prosecution was still convinced that Amanda had something to do with the murder, she still had to go to trial. Um, and her trial was on January 16th, 2009, a year and a half after the murder happened. And remember, Amanda had been in prison this entire time. And the prosecution basically explained what they think happened, which was the following. They believed that the whole situation was a staged break-in. They said that the motive for the murder, what they believed to be the motive, was that Meredith was very conservative and didn't approve of Amanda's lifestyle of, like, sex and drugs and partying, so that created a lot of tension in their household. They also referenced Amanda and Raphael's weird behavior after the crime took place, like how they were kissing and hugging and stuff like that. Um, so... Supporting the stage break-in theory, they mentioned how strange it was that nothing had been stolen from the house, even though there was a purse, a camera, and a laptop in the room where Meredith was murdered. They just, they were still there. Like, they didn't take them. They didn't steal them. They thought it was really weird that someone who, like, someone would just break in to a house, kill someone, and then leave. Although, honestly, living in America, the land of, like, serial rapists and serial killers... I think we all know that's not that crazy, um, but I digress. Um, they also pointed out that there was a broken window in Meredith's room, and they claimed that even though there was a large rock on the ground that could have been used to break the window, they thought it would have been too big to throw up there. Because, remember, they lived on the second floor of this two-story apartment, so I guess they thought that the rock was too heavy to be lifted and like thrown at the window to break in. Um, they also noted that the broken glass from the window was lying on top of Meredith's clothes, whereas if someone had broken into the apartment, then taken off Meredith's clothes, then tied her up, then killed her, the glass would be underneath the clothes, because the clothes would have been taken off after the window had already been broken, if that makes sense. Also, they decided to use luminol on the crime scene, which is basically, it's a chemical that's just used to detect, like, trace amounts of blood that's, like, invisible to the naked eye. So even if it's been cleaned up, they can still see it. Um, what they found was three other bloodstained footprints as well as some other smaller bloodstains. They also discovered that the bloody footprint in the bathroom was the exact same shape and size of Amanda's, like, footprint, her foot. <laughs> same, it, it fit Amanda's foot, basically. Um, and so since they found traces of Amanda and Meredith's DNA and some blood throughout the apartment, they determined that there had been some sort of, like, physical altercation between the two girls. Um, but the defense made the point that these girls both lived at this apartment. Of course there was going to be DNA all over the place because they lived there. Um, also, that they could have been just finding traces of, like, Amanda's saliva on stuff because they found... Some of the evidence they took was that they claimed was blood was came from the bathroom sink. Like, obviously you brush your teeth in the bathroom sink, so... And apparently blood and saliva show up in a similar way when you test them or something. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. But that was, like, one of their biggest uh, defenses. They're one of their biggest points on the defense side. Um, the court essentially devised... Or, I'm sorry, the prosecution essentially devised this scenario, which is that Amanda brought Rudy and Raphael home to have a threesome with. Meredith said some snarky shit to Amanda about it, probably be, like that she was a whore or something like that. They got into a physical altercation, and then because the guys were apparently willing to do pretty much anything to sleep with Amanda that night, they tied up Meredith, tortured her with a knife for a while, sexually assaulted her, cut her throat left her on the floor of her bedroom, covered her body with a blanket, and then staged a break-in. Yeah. 
This theory obviously also reinforced the media's portrayal of Amanda being like the sex crazed succubus as well. <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's insane. So in June of 2009, it was finally time for Amanda to tell her version of the story. And she spent two days on the stand and she was pretty, pretty much just asked the same things. Like, why did she tell the police it was Patrick when he had nothing to do with it? And she said the same thing that she said before, which was that she felt like she was being forced and tricked into saying something that wasn't true and a bunch of other stuff like that. The trial ended up lasting almost a year, 323 days to be exact, but on December 4th, 2009, a little over two years after the murder, the jury finally had a verdict, and they found Amanda Knox and Rafael Solicito guilty of murder. Amanda was sentenced to 26 years in Italian prison, and Rafael was sentenced to 25 years. Um, apparently, Amanda got that extra year because she lied about Patrick being there when he wasn't, or whatever. Um, obviously, Amanda and her family were in complete shock because they, they genuinely believed that she was going to be found not guilty. She said that she was hoping the justice system would pull through and that the truth would come out and that she would be able to go home finally. Because keep in mind, she'd been in an Italian prison for like a year and a half at this point. Two years, basically. And the murder only happened like a month and a half after she got to Italy. So this has not been a fun time for anybody. Also, people in America were really angry that she was convicted whereas people in Italy were, like, really happy about it. And if you can believe this, one of the people who was most outspoken about her innocence was actually Donald Trump. Um, this was obviously before he was president, but he went on national television and talked about it, actually. And I'll insert some clips here so you can hear what he had to say about it. Well, I think I'm good at judging people. And I study people, and I become rich because I understand what people are about. And I watched the Amanda Knox case unfolding in news reports from people like yourself. And after watching it for a little while, I said, this is not a guilty person. There's no evidence that links her to this crime other than she said some stupid things after, you know, being tormented for hours and hours and hours. You said you might help the family. What do you mean? I may. I mean, they haven't asked me, but... I may help the family. I think it's very unfair. I help a lot of families. I help many families all over the United States, actually. It just hit me. There's no reward in this for me. If anything, it's the opposite. I mean, I have a whole country that maybe doesn't like that I'm doing this, but I think it's very unfair, and I think that President Obama should get involved immediately and get her the hell out of jail because she shouldn't be there. So Amanda's family obviously had to leave Italy without her, and when they got back to America, they immediately started working on an appeal um, and a year after the verdict, in November 2010, they all met back in the courtroom for the appeal. And at this point, Amanda and Raphael had been in prison for three years. And because this case was so long and so drawn out, there was like this whole, there was a whole new prosecutor and a whole new judge. And basically, the defense's whole argument was that Rudy Gueda, Rudy Gueda was the only guilty party in the murder, considering he had already been tried and convicted for the sexual assault and murder of Meredith Kircher. Also, apparently, there were inmates who came forward and claimed that Rudy had confessed to them that he was guilty. Then on... I mean, like, nothing happens for so long in this case. It's so frustrating. But then on June 27th of 2011, Rudy took the stand again. And at this point, Rudy's sentence had actually been knocked down to 16 years from the original 30 and while he was on the stand, he maintained his innocence and claimed that the inmates who said he confessed to them were lying. And even though he originally said that Amanda and Raphael had nothing to do with the crime, he stood by his second statement uh, that he believed Amanda and Raphael were the ones who committed the murder. Um, after all of this, the appeals court found an independent forensic expert to reanalyze the crucial pieces of evidence, which were the knife from Raphael's apartment and Meredith's bra clamp thing. And the expert came back and said that he found 54 mistakes in the way that all of this took place. He said, uh, they said that the spread of DNA is actually really easy, like way easier than you think. And that just because there are tiny traces of someone's DNA on something doesn't necessarily mean they actually touched it. It could have been transferred there by someone else after they, like, brushed up against them or something, like, at a completely different location. Um, 
Also, apparently, the team of people who were there collecting evidence were, like, really irresponsible with it. They didn't switch out shoe covers when they were walking around. They were keeping all the evidence in, like, a basic, like, grocery plastic bag, not properly storing it, you know, stuff like that. So they were basically tracking DNA from all over the house into different places, for example, into Meredith's bedroom. Um, And overall, they decided that the DNA evidence was just not reliable at all, and it was tracked all over the house by these idiotic and unreliable investigators there was this very high chance that things could have been cross-contaminated. And what they did find was so minimal, it was almost irrelevant. Like, it was, like, not even noteworthy. Um, So after deliberating over everything they'd heard for the past year or so, on October 3rd, 2011, a new verdict finally came for Amanda's appeal, and she and Raphael were acquitted and immediately released from prison, where where they had just spent the last four years... Four years in the Italian prison. People in Italy were really pissed. This was basically like their O.J. Simpson case. They thought that Amanda and Raphael had basically just gotten away with murder. And that they were, they were, like, there were people gathered outside the courtroom screaming things at Amanda. Like, shame on you. You should rot in prison for the rest of your life. Like, you're a murderer. Like, how dare you? And it was actually so bad that the police had to take Amanda to an isolated location so that she could peacefully reunite with her family without being harassed. Um, And then obviously after reuniting with her family, they immediately got on a plane and headed back to Seattle. But the story does not end there, folks. Oh no, it continues. When Amanda returned home, she enrolled at the University of Washington, got her own place, and was like starting to rebuild her life, despite the fact that the American public was pretty uneducated about the case, so she felt like, rumors and misinformation kind of controlled her life and that she didn't really have any privacy. But like I said, she was starting to get her life back on track regardless. Um, that was until March 26, 2013. That was when the Italian court decided to overturn both Amanda and Raphael's acquittals. See, Italy doesn't have the same double jeopardy rule that America does, where you can't be tried for the same crime twice. They basically used circumstantial evidence to claim that they were both actually guilty, and Amanda actually refused to leave America until the trial was officially over because she was so freaked out at the idea of having to go back to an Italian prison. So in September of 2013, because they supposedly found more of Amanda's DNA on the knife, they found her guilty regardless and actually sentenced her to 28 years and six months in prison for the murder of Meredith Kircher. Of course, Amanda appealed this again, and she claimed that she was absolutely horrified by all of this. I can't even fucking imagine. Like, that sounds horrible. And this was the last appeal that she could file, so pretty much everything was on the line here. And after two days of deliberation, the jury finally came to a verdict, and Amanda and Raphael were exonerated. So they were free to go. The court did say they had enough evidence to find Raphael guilty of the murder, But they just didn't. (laughs) Like, they were both just able to walk free. Um, So after they were free, Raphael actually started his own company in Italy and is now a true crime specialist on an Italian true crime TV show. And Amanda ended up graduating from college in 2014 and is now an advocate for women who have been publicly shamed for their sexuality in ways that greatly affected them. And she actually started a show called The Scarlet Letter Reports in 2018. Um, I'll insert a clip here of Amanda explaining what exactly that is. I am interviewing various women who have seen different shades of this same problem. I reached out to as many diverse people as possible because I wanted to show how all of these disparate circumstances are very similar and they're coming from a similar problem. I know you're also pointing to, it goes beyond slut shaming because you pick up any tabloid magazine. There's body shaming, mental health shaming, whether or not you are like intelligence shaming, it's it's we we put people up on a pedestal and we very quickly turn that into a pillory. We have this very weird schizophrenic relationship with people who are in our public eye. Self-awareness is the the solution to this issue. It's not, you know, having some like thumb on on journalism. It's just Choice. us. It's us and knowing what choices we're making by consuming the information that we consume. Also, there's been a couple of scandals with Amanda since 2014. 
she apparently asked people to donate to a GoFundMe so that she could have, like, a her dream wedding or something like that. But it came out that she was already married and that she had been married for a year before she asked people for money for a wedding. Um, also, she recently returned to Italy for the first time since uh, she left, like, since the first time she was acquitted, which was very controversial. People were very upset with her. They thought it was in very poor taste. Um, but, I mean, whatever. I actually follow her on Instagram. Yeah, I follow Amanda Knox on Instagram, and you can too. Just look up Amanda Knox on Instagram. She's right there. It's crazy. She has a podcast now where she talks about true crime. Isn't that crazy? I don't know. But now that's all fine and dandy. But in my opinion, this whole case was sensationalized so much to the point where people were too busy talking about Foxy Noxy that they completely forgot about the fact that Meredith Kircher was brutally murdered in her own home. And honestly, I've watched several of Amanda's interviews after she was exonerated. And even in the Netflix documentary, she doesn't even really talk about the fact that Meredith was murdered. She pretty much just talks about how much she suffered and how she was a victim, which to me comes off as super narcissistic, honestly. And I mean, I understand. I understand why she would want to talk about what happened to her. But like, we were so preoccupied with the fact that a beautiful American girl had been caught up in like this fucked up murder case in a different country that we forgot that Meredith was murdered brutally and sexually assaulted in her own home. And we're not even 100% sure that the guy who's in prison for it right now actually did it. Doesn't that concern anybody? I don't know. That concerns me a little bit. Whatever. <laughs> and listen, I'm not saying that I think she's 100% guilty, but based on some of her behavior, I don't know if I believe she's completely innocent either. Like, like I said at the beginning, watching the Netflix documentary had, like, the opposite effect on me than what I think was meant to have, like, what was meant to happen to me. Um, and I left it feeling like she definitely had something to do with it, and she just wasn't telling us. But, listen, if you want to learn even more about this case, I suggest watching the Netflix documentary. Um, you can also watch many of the YouTube videos about this case. I watched, like, six of them. It was insane. I'm, like, a crazy person. Uh, you can also visit, uh, themurderofmeredithkircher.com. They've kind of, like, laid out all of the details of this case so that you can, like, read everything really easily. And you can, you can decide for yourself whether or not you think that Amanda is guilty. Not that it really matters because she's been exonerated by the Italian Supreme Court. But, like, you know, just in your, for your own personal satisfaction, you can decide whether or not you think she's guilty. But, um, there's also an Amanda Knox subreddit as well, where they discuss the, the case and stuff like that, but anyway, I'm done rambling, um, that's all I have for you today, if you like what you heard, please consider following me on Twitter, at Deviance Podcast, um, also on Instagram, which is also at Deviance Podcast, um, and I also have a Facebook page now called Deviance, a true crime podcast, um, but yeah, thank you so much for listening, um, and as always, stay safe out there, bye. That's everyone's nightmare. Either I'm a psychopath in sheep's clothing, or I am you. <laughs>